Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Hello, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby. My name is Michael Holmes. My name is Reed. And my name is Mia. And you are listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem and the Health in Harlem podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we have our fourth COVID-19 update Um, Just bringing you some more information about the vaccines, about where we are as far as the vaccination campaign, both here in the U.S. and throughout the world, and also just to talk about COVID itself. I think we're all pretty much aware we have three vaccines that have gained emergency use authorization by the FDA. That is the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and Moderna vaccine, both of those mRNA vaccines. And then we have this new Johnson & Johnson vaccine that was just recently uh, approved and is available. It's actually gone into arms probably as we speak. According to President Biden, he promises that there will be enough vaccines for all American adults to be vaccinated by May of this year. And that this is made feasible by an agreement with Merck and company to actually help in manufacturing um, additional vaccine and especially the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that they're going to assist with here in the United States. Um, And just of note, Merck is the second largest vaccine manufacturer in the world, hence, right, having them on board. um, That's how they are really just um, really speeding up this effort um, as far as the vaccination campaign. And he also prioritized the vaccination of all teachers by the end of the month, right? So really um, just trying to make headway, right, in terms of the, not only the campaign, but just getting us back to, normal, quote unquote, or getting everything back open. Uh, but in terms of the updates and, you know, we, we talk about these vaccines. One thing that we can definitely, I feel like we can definitely say at this point is that their efficacy, right? The long story short is that they seem to be working, especially, especially when it comes to preventing uh, severe COVID-19. And among the best evidence that is out there right now is actually coming from overseas, Um, especially in Israel, as of February 6th, they uh, vaccinated approximately 85% of people over 60 years of age. Um, At that time, they had about 40% of the total population that had received at least one dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. And they noted a decrease in hospital admissions, especially for that population, that over 60s age group, 
where two thirds of the peak hospitalizations in January, um, they were only at two thirds of that number as of uh, early early February, um, having vaccinated approximately 85% of those individuals 60 and over, right? And that number is still on a downward trend. Um, so with that said, right, I think we have a lot of evidence that this is working. Um, we see it also in other parts of the world where the vaccination campaigns are going a little bit better, where we see decreased rates of um, especially severe COVID. The jury is still out as far as transmission, right? Having been vaccinated, um, whether or not you can still transmit the disease, but there is some encouraging data showing that this these vaccines, um, including the mRNA vaccines, and especially with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that these vaccines might prevent transmission of um, COVID or SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. And so I think there's definitely reason to be optimistic. What's up, Reed? Uh, just to ask, during the original clinical trials with the vaccine, they did not test all the participants w- to see whether they were transmissible, right? They just tested to see if they became positive with COVID? Correct. They just tested essentially to see the risk reduction, right, after being vaccinated, how much individuals had their risk of, of acquiring COVID-19 reduced after being vaccinated, Um and they did this with a control group, right, that did not get the vaccine. They actually had a placebo that they had received. Um, so a similar injection looked the same, probably smelled the same, but it was just saline in that syringe versus individuals that got vaccine. And what they did was track these individuals to see who ultimately came down with the infection. Um, and it was noted that in those groups, especially with the mRNA vaccine data from the Moderna trials and the Pfizer-BioNTech trials, Right. That's where we saw those numbers, those 95 percent efficacy numbers, or basically there's a 95 percent reduction in the risk of acquiring COVID-19 in those group individuals that got the vaccine uh, in those trials. But as you said, they did not look at transmission. That is something that is currently being looked at with the with the ongoing trials and vaccination campaigns. Gotcha. Thank you. Now, moving on. Right. As much as I want to just talk about vaccines, me personally, I'm fascinated by, been fascinated even before uh, what we're dealing with um, as far as this crisis. I'm an immunology head. I think it's fascinating how our bodies work, the immune system, how we can trigger that, right, and um, use it to our advantage to even prevent infections. I think it's fascinating stuff, especially when we talk about some of the technology that we have now, especially regarding these mRNA vaccines. But I'm going to table that right now. I'm going to table that because I think the conversation that we really need to focus on is sort of what's happening around us um, as far as other interventions in dealing with this crisis, specifically talking about non-pharmaceutical interventions, the boring stuff, right? The stuff that everybody's pissed off about, including Maurice Donovan Selby, (laughs) wearing damn masks and social distancing and not being, well, I probably wouldn't be at the club at this point in my life with uh, two daughters and a wife, um, maybe for somebody's birthday or something, or being at the movie theater or being at a, uh, as much as I would prefer to be at a New York Knicks game, it'd probably be the Atlanta Hawks. But still, I want to be out there. I want to be enjoying life. I think that's everybody. It is definitely understandable to be frustrated, right, with how long we've had to really hunker down in dealing with this crisis. But the all right, I'm gonna. I'm not going to use expletives. Um, in preparing for this show, <laughs> I 
I know reading them are probably like, damn, yo, Mojo's cursed. Like he's real. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about this. You know why I'm passionate about this? Because last year, Maurice Donovan Selby, and we can go back. We still have that um, posted on our, our website, right? We're not taking it down just to look, uh, you know, uh, we are higher than thou type of deal or that we're perfect on this program. Um, everybody makes mistakes, including myself. And if they're, I don't have many regrets in life, but one regret that I do have is um, this is probably about the anniversary of that last program that we aired on WHCR. We did a Facebook live session as well and posted that to our Facebook account. That was we like had Dr. Last- Rhonda Truesdale. I think that was the last time we were in the studio. That was the last time we were in the studio. That was the last time, right? We were all together um, broadcasting together, which was so dope. And I, I'm really just fond of that time now because it's, you know, a year later, about to the date a year later. And on that last program, we just talked about the impending crisis, right? We were talking about COVID. It had just reached New York City about the week before. And there's all these questions about what to do. How are we going to respond to this, right? As a city, as a country, are we, do we need to shut down? Do we need to curb or change our behavior behavior at that time? And um, I remember Ben Suferi, right? He asked me, he looked me in the eye and said, Maurice, well, would you get on the subway right now? Like with all of it, with this thing, you know, being out there and stuff and it's in the city now. Um, and I looked at him and I said, yo, not only would I ride the subway, because that's what I did. I had to get home anyway. <laughs> so I knew I was like, well, damn, I'm going to ride the damn subway. But not only would I get on the subway, if I had tickets to a Nets game tonight, I would go to the Nets game and like enjoy that time. You know, right now the risk is low and, you know, sort of good hand hygiene and stuff. That's I mean, obviously we should be practicing that all the time. But that was the thinking at that time. At that time, that was, and I, I apologize for that, ladies and gentlemen, that was a statement, and maybe even you can consider a recommendation that was made in absolute ignorance. And I would say, even though I had some data on hand at that time to support my personal decision in making that statement, you know, looking at the mortality rates at that time, looking at, at that time, how we knew it was transmitted, right? Um, it being an upper respiratory illness and that we thought at the time that individuals that really manifested symptoms, so coughing and sneezing and hacking, those are probably individuals at highest risk of transmitting disease, which is still the case today. But we didn't really understand the information behind um, asymptomatic transmission. We did not have the data available to even have the idea that there is some data or some evidence that this could be even airborne, right? Something that changes things dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of unknowns. Yeah, and not with the only information, that, we, yeah. We, uh, we didn't really think it was in New York and we only learned until quite a while later that it, it was in New York much earlier than we originally. Yes, that it was more widespread. And I remember thinking that, right? Which part of, uh, that was part of the decision in me saying it, hey, I'd probably be just out there because, and I, I think I even said that on that program that this has probably been here already, right? This has been here for some time being that we see one case already. Um, and actually, there were a handful of cases, not just one case, uh, because there was that that uh, outbreak in, um, oh boy, Westchester County, where, um, right, yeah. where there was a cluster of cases there. And so I was like, look, it's, it's been here probably, you know, this stuff is already circulating. You know, we need more data. But right now, continue as, uh, continue life. As. But anyway, we know now, right, we have a much better understanding of this disease. 
um, especially when we talk about things like asymptomatic transmission. We have a lot of data about preventing that transmission, right? That was still stuff we were trying to figure out. And the thing that we really need to think about and even capitalize on, right? I mean, we are animals, <laughs> a part of the animal kingdom, but we have evolved, right? As uh, homo sapiens, we have a capability that a lot of animals don't have. Um, and that is to take prior experiences and really make decisions. I mean, yeah, we have other species that can do this, but we can do it on a much higher level. We can say, hey, I was definitely wrong about some decisions I've made. <laughs> and, or, you know, we, we, we can learn from information that we've gathered, especially the work that has been done by our public health professionals, epidemiologists, um, infectious disease specialists, really getting to notice disease. My personal experiences working in emergency medicine and seeing not only how this disease can be transmitted in various ways, but how deadly it can be to just open up right now, right? What we see is happening in Texas and in other parts of the country, um, individuals at the highest level making these decisions to just open up, to even make a re the recommendation on um, removing mask mandates in public. I think it is a serious mistake. It is a serious mistake. And especially when we talk about, right, this is where it's going to come down to us as individuals. Unfortunately, um, I do have to say that I feel to a certain extent we've been let down by the larger structures in society um, in terms of managing this illness at the, the highest levels, right? Public health. I mean, we see some stuff coming out of the federal government, uh, mandating masks on federal property. That's a start coming out of the Biden administration. Um, and we see it at other levels, but in some, you know, for some individuals out there in leadership positions, removing some of these mandates, I think is a mistake. And it really comes down to us as individuals to act on what we know. And the data has really shown itself to really point toward mask wearing, social distancing, what we should all have been practicing up to this point forever, right? As far as good hand hygiene, um, staying home when we're sick, all of those things we really need to put into play because the vaccines, unfortunately, by themselves, they are not going to get us back to quote unquote normal. These measures that we've seen implemented in other parts of the world, um, especially in parts of Asia. So we look at China as probably the number one example. Their lockdown, draconian lockdown, definitely not something that I think we want here in the United States. Even I'm not a fan of that, right? Completely shutting down. It's not feasible. Um, but we definitely saw how their rates of COVID, they're, they're, it plummeted, essentially plummeted because of that lockdown. Uh, but if we just look at more practical examples, let's just talk about New York City last spring. Last spring, New York City was a disaster. It was a war zone. Yeah. Um, all you heard were sirens continuously. This was like two and a half to three weeks, sirens everywhere. We were overwhelmed in the hospitals. Um, one of the scarier, I mean, definitely the scariest part of my career up to this point, including young individuals, right? It's not a disease that was just limited to affecting the elderly as we originally thought you know, young people coming down with severe disease and um, having bad outcomes. And we saw the night and day difference from no mask wearing and minimal social distancing to right once we had uh, hunkered down and started wearing masks and started abiding by these social distancing rules, 
we saw a crisis that evaporated essentially mm-hmm. uh, to the point where the rates of COVID, we went from completely packed EDs, emergency departments with COVID patients to empty waiting rooms and emergency departments. And that happened within a span of weeks, right? Um, I think that's the clearest evidence to me, at least, having seen it firsthand. And probably a lot of you listeners out there, right, have, have sought a difference. That is, that's the best evidence that we have um, as far as mask wearing, social distancing. And that's why, you know, unfortunately, if our elected officials are not going to, you know, put things in place to help us really do that as much as we can it's going to be up to us and so the movie theater as much as i want to go to the movies as much as i want to go to a hawks game or uh you know be out there like you know enjoying life as we previously knew it um we just can't do that at this at this time i think we really need to curb our behavior and and try our very best to minimize those large gatherings especially if you're not vaccinated it's just one of those things that we really need to, for the next few months at least, until we get the vaccination rates up, until we see the rates continuing to decline. Because you know we saw a decline from about mid-January um, up to now, where those rates have been going down. But that trend, right, that that plummet that we saw after the holidays, is kind of leveled off. Now we're plateauing. I mean, I, I'm afraid that we might even go up with all of the the restrictions being lifted and everything opening back up. And so it really is going to come down to the individual, unfortunately, to make these decisions. I think it's even important to mention, even with all these vaccines being distributed and like, you know, even Biden mentioning he's going to ship out like 100 million more Johnson & Johnson vaccines, like the CDC still recommends that people that are vaccinated, even they have to continue to, you know, wear their mask in public and physically yes. distance and if you see like people at risk, like masked up and everything, even if things are opening up and you see these vaccines rolling out, and even if you are vaccinated, like there's still risk out there. And uh, that's that's one thing, like you said, the CDC says it. So they are right. Some of our public health agencies that are still making the same recommendations. If you look at the public health agencies across this country, and especially when we look at the federal government and uh, agencies like the CDC. Um, their recommendations have not changed that much <laughs> because they know, right, that this is the vaccine in itself is not the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, we still need to maintain that discipline. Um, and, and you know, unfortunately, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I think we've said it in the past on this program, but this is, right, the mask wearing and the social distancing stuff that was not going to stop. I think we tried to get that out there that that was not going to stop mm-hmm. for a good amount of time, you know, um, even up to years. There are some proponents saying that really what we need to do um, from a governmental level is start to create policies with this in mind that this is going to be something that is endemic to us in the United States and around the world, meaning COVID is not going to go away. And we learn, have to learn to live with it just as we learn to live with the flu, uh, just as we've learned to live with other respiratory diseases throughout our history. We have to make some adjustments. We have to be we have to adjust our behavior. Right. And that's what we are capable of as human beings and doing. We can adjust our behavior to protect ourselves, protect our families and protect our communities. Uh, and so will it be mask wearing in large gatherings indoor I mean, I would be dope, I think, to go to a Hawks game 
right? You got your Knicks mask. Well, guess what? I'm a Knicks fan. I got my Knicks mask. You got your Atlanta heart. That's what that that might be what it is. You might have glass partitions. Who know? I don't know what it's gonna be, but there might be partitions between the seats, right? Which I think is dope because whoever's yelling loud, you don't have people like <laughs> spitting on you and stuff while they're like cheering or spilling beer on you. Um, but then you don't have to worry about COVID or some other respiratory illnesses being transmitted to you. Uh, so it'll be different, but I think there are ways in which we can learn to live with this disease and make sure that everybody's safe. And also at the same time, right? Like we said, we want to get back to normal, uh, but we need to be smart about that and not rush into just opening up because mm-hmm. people want to open up. Like that's just, just foolish. I'm sorry. I got to put it out there like that, man. We usually don't express strong opinions on health and harm like that, but <laughs> uh, president Biden saying that this is Neanderthal thinking <laughs> I was like, that is on the money. Actually, there was a comment to, uh, um, oh boy, where did I read this? Where they were like, no, actually, like, don't, don't, uh, disrespect Neanderthals like that. <laughs> they were in the pro- in the business of like making tools and like, you know, like, um, you know, which is, and, and um, yeah, exactly. They were in the pro in the, in the business of like making tools to like better their lives and like using those tools. And right now th- these fools are not using the tools that we have yeah. to address this pandemic. So. Um, I thought that was pretty funny, man. But let's let's get into uh, real fast, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to hold the vaccine, right? Because that's probably why you tuned into this program. People are like, I want to know about the vaccine. But well, guess what? Uh, we're going to save the best, right, for last or what you can. Because one thing that I think we need to just to reinforce that idea of social distancing and sort of all of the things that we need to do as a public right now, we need to talk about these variants because that's the real scary thing. We're not just dealing with the original COVID, we're dealing with its three amigos. Uh, Let's just start with, we can just actually talk about these variants in and of themselves. Uh, We can just talk about B117. That is a variant that is largely thought to originate, or at least was first discovered circulating in Britain. They have, you know, I kind of like to look at these, these three variants as... And there are multiple, right? We'll just say that there are multiple variants out there, ladies and gentlemen, hundreds, if not thousands of variants in the year's time that we've been dealing with this. You know, this is something that is going to happen with a virus like this, is that there are going to be mutations, there are going to be variants that arise, and they can have different characteristics. When we look at these three, I kind of like to think of them as like three spawns or like three villains that arose from this original one, right? Like, <laughs> and they each have their own superpower. Uh, so if we start with B117, this one is special in that what we've seen is that it's, it's very transmissible, right? It is more infectious or maybe you can say more contagious. There are some estimates out there saying um, 40% more uh, infectious or more contagious. There are some uh, numbers that are even citing higher rates of infection um, in comparison to the original strain. When we talk about social distancing with this one, right, some of the evidence points to actually buckling down a little bit harder. So yeah, maybe that variant that made the UK lock down the hardest. I think I've seen a lockdown for what was it, two weeks? A little mm-hmm. bit more. This is the variant that caused all that. And it was still and it was still circulating. It was still circulating. The rates were still climbing for uh, for those weeks and they could not understand why. But this is, you know, one of the reasons why is that this seems to be a more um, infectious 
strain than the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the reasoning for that is that there are thoughts that some mutations in the spike protein itself. So that's the protein, you know, going back that protein that actually binds to our cells um, and allows the virus to enter our cells. There were some changes in that that made it in a way more sticky, right? It, it binds with a greater affinity or binds tighter and better to our cells and allows the virus to enter our cells, therefore making it more communicable or more contagious, right? That is sort of the dominant thinking at this point. But as Reed said, right, this was a, a huge lockdown uh, in Britain and they still could not control the spread of this uh, virus. The variant that we're all familiar with, uh, it's, it's pretty low risk to do activities like taking the subway or going to the grocery store. But with a variant like that, all of a sudden, those, those activities have become significantly higher risk. And a lot of it is things you can't get out of doing uh, or things that it's difficult to get out of doing, uh, especially if you are not rich and don't have the ability to pay people to do all of those things for you. Yes. So fortunately, uh, even though they locked down and the vast majority of people uh, followed the lockdown to the best of their ability, uh, still, unfortunately, it was because it was so transmissible, it was spreading sometimes when people were outside, when people were in the grocery store, all those things that we deemed are pretty low risk activities are no longer low risk when that variant comes around. And hence, right, this is the need. This is why opening up right now, especially when we talk about this particular variant, the B117 variant, probably not the brightest idea to be going to a movie theater or singing karaoke or at your favorite steakhouse. That's where I would be or mm-hmm. getting my brisket in Texas, right? Being with everything being open. But I can't even enjoy the damn brisket right now because I'd be thinking that the person over me, if you laugh too loud, I'm going to look at you or in a the movie theater, like, yo, stop laughing, son. Like, what are you like? <laughs> like, there's COVID in the air. Like, I can't even enjoy being open. Like, it's just not enjoyable right now because of these variants. And when we look at where this is, so it's in the, the continental United States. There are about 3,283 cases. This is as of March 9th, yesterday, um, according to the CDC. And we see the heaviest burden in Florida right now with. Uh, 600 to about 700 cases, but we can see that map. They have it color coded and um, it's pretty much all over the country. There are only about two states with no cases reported at this time, but it's pretty much throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And so part of it too, is that this becomes a race against uh, time, right? We have to really ramp up the vaccination campaign before these variants really start to take hold and become the dominant strains And the reason being, right, when we look at another variant, uh, so this is the second Amigo, B1351. Uh, This one has, its superpower is is that it can essentially avoid aspects of our immune system. Um, It has ways of sort of dodging, right, the bullet. The bullet being those antibodies that we form from either having had COVID or having been vaccinated. B1351 has this special ability to avoid um, being neutralized by um, antibodies and other parts of our immune system. And so this one is sly, right? This is somehow evading our immunity and able to infect us. There are cases where individuals that have had COVID that have come down with this illness. And also one thing that we've seen is that um, having originated in, or at least first being detected in South Africa, 
Johnson and Johnson's trials that were taking place there. Unfortunately, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine could not even be approved because the rates at which it prevented uh, COVID-19, it was compromised essentially, right? And that's uh, thought to be partially because it is able to, as we said, avoid our immune system. And so that's the second Amigo. And that too is here in the continental United States. There's about 91 reported cases um, in the country at this time. As far as its distribution, we see it a lot on the Eastern seaboard. Um, It is definitely in Texas, right? So you Yahoo's in Texas. No, they call us Yahoo's actually, I think, or Yankees rather. But anyway, I'm sorry. I got to shout y'all out in Texas, man. Y'all got to write to Governor Abbott or whoever you need to in the state legislature there or somebody like something has to happen protest because that variant is there right and uh if you don't vaccinate your state uh that could very well take hold and you can have another crisis on your hand and we saw what was happening in cities especially like houston right getting pounded with covid um pretty sure the docs in that state are probably not very happy or at least fans of just opening up right now and shout out to any other uh, state or locality in this country that is open up. Well, think about uh, B1351. Think about B117 and how contagious it is. It is not the wisest thing to be opening up right now. But then a lot of what um, experts out there, when you talk to infectious disease experts and you ask them, right, which one, which variant is like the one that you like worry about the most, right? Where you know, you might be losing sleep or stressed about thinking about P1 is the one that is probably the scariest. Uh, This originated in a small town in Brazil, and it devastated this locality in Brazil. This third Amigo is special in that it has, it seems to have characteristics of both um, the other two variants that we spoke of. It is more transmissible, seems to be more transmissible or more contagious than the original um, SARS-CoV-2 strain but it also has some ability to dodge our immune system, right? And so this third Amigo is like the one (laughs) that is potentially most dangerous. And there were, you know, this was like a crisis um, at the height of the outbreak in Brazil, devastated this um, particular part of the country. You know, unfortunately, it has made its way here to the United States. And as I said, when you talk to the experts and what's out there as far as what what we know about this particular variant, this is the one that is most concerning to them because of those reasons, Um, as far as it being potentially more contagious and also being able to dodge our immune system. So right now, the verdict is out. Like We really don't know as much about this particular strain, but the fear is that it might not be, uh, or at least the vaccines we have available might not be as effective for it. And two, it is something that if we are going to be opening up you know, living our best lives, this is something that could be a really problematic in the near future, um, especially if it becomes one of the dominant strains in our country and we don't have sufficient protection um, with the vaccine. So, right, the, the thing with the vaccine, and this is why we've made the case, I think, on this program, uh, as far as people making that individual choice, this is all about individual choice, right? We claim this is a free country. We want people to exercise their liberties here. Um, well, you you have the liberties to make decisions that are either not in your best interest or in your best interest. And that's what we're trying to give you as the data to make those decisions that we hopefully think, right? And collectively in all of our best interests, um, which is, at this point is abiding by the social distancing and also considering being vaccinated. 
uh, because if these strains begin to take hold, right, especially when we talk about that third amigo, P1, if we don't get a better handle on this outbreak, these dominant strains could wipe out everything that we've accomplished so far in, in terms of dealing with this disease. When we talk about the vaccination campaigns, right, and then potentially not being as effective with these variants, um, when we talk about letting this sort of go widespread, and there's even some data to support the P1 variant being more virulent, meaning causing more severe disease in individuals, right? So we're talking the same stuff that we just saw as far as um, hospitals and health healthcare systems being overwhelmed, the lockdowns that result from that, right? And the economic devastation that we've seen from that, like we could just be living this all over again. <laughs> like That's the scary thing. You know, forget all of the coffins and stuff. I think everybody's hurting economically and hurting psychologically and wanting to get back to normal. Um, our children are hurting, right, in terms of getting them back to schools. Um, we've even seen multi-system inflammatory syndrome and some children actually having really bad outcomes, even dying from this illness. Well, guess what? Um, we might be going through all of that stuff again if we don't buckle down and abide by social distancing guidelines and mask wearing and also by not, um, you know, getting this vaccination. Now, one thing that I think is as we move on to talking about the vaccines themselves uh, real quick, one thing that I'm, I'm excited about is that the demand for the vaccine, uh, despite the hesitancy amongst many in this country, um, the demand is outstripping supply, man. People are out there like traveling state to state to get it. People are standing in lines to get it and finding ways to get it. And I think that they are making those decisions based on a lot of the data and what they're seeing around them because that demand has increased. So I think people are starting to realize that, hey, this seems like a viable, safe and effective way to lower their risk, um, their personal risk. Right. And that's why people are getting vaccinated. Um, and so that is, a, in my eyes, a good sign, um, having made the decision to get the vaccination myself. And when we look at the data, as we said, it, it is decreasing hospitalization um, in this country, but also around the world. And we're seeing that data in real time. Um, that, is, that is definitely encouraging to individuals that have not made that decision yet. Uh, we're just going to go through real fast and just talk about where we are right now as far as the vaccines themselves. So as we know, mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, right? That is currently has an emergency use authorization by the FDA. Same thing with the Moderna, also another mRNA vaccine um, that is available. But now we have the Johnson & Johnson, which is a little bit different, right? The new kid on the block, very briefly, without getting too complicated, there are some pluses, right? When it comes to that vaccine in comparison to the Pfizer and BioNTech. Yeah. So when we saw the Pfizer and BioNTech, the, the headlines of the day, that 95% efficacy, right, um, of those two vaccines, we saw that, right, in real data as, you know, out of those um, thousands of individuals at the time of publication of those uh, phase three trials, right, we were talking about 18,000 people that got the vaccine. And out of that 18,000, only about eight of them had developed COVID. Um, only one person had severe COVID in that experimental group that actually got the vaccine. We looked at the control group and there was a, like 162 cases, right, in the control group. So the individuals that got the placebo group or got the placebo, there were 162 of them that developed COVID and nine out of the 10 severe cases in that entire trial, nine out of the 10 severe cases were in the group that 
got the placebo as well. So the, the group that did not get the vaccine. And that's where that 95% efficacy for the vaccine comes from, That those numbers, right? It reduced the risk of acquiring COVID-19 by 95%. If we go back to last year, right, jump back in our time machines and talk about what we knew at that time, a lot of the experts in vaccine development and infectious disease, if you told them they had a vaccine that was going to be 95% uh, effective or eff efficacious, they would have laughed at you probably um, because the expectations that we, the expectations was that we were going to get a vaccine that was maybe 50% effective. They would have been happy with 50%. Now, when we look at the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, the data, you know, they're citing numbers around 70% effective. Now you might look at that and say, Hey, I'm getting shafted if I get this right. Um, because there's 95% in these other, well, that's, that's in the trials, right? We talk about, and actually Stephen Thomas, who we had on one of the leads in that phase three trial for Pfizer, right? For the Pfizer vaccine, he said that, hey, the real world, right? Effectiveness is, go is going to be some differences from what the efficacy in those trials, that 95% in the trials and what the actual effectiveness is in real, right? In the real world. Um, and so we do see that these vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are very effective, but there are some limitations to those vaccines, um, namely, and that they are two shots, right? So you have to get two separate shots about three weeks apart. Um, you get one uh, shot dose one, and then about three weeks later, three to four weeks later, you'll get the second shot. Um, so it's a two dose vaccine, whereas the Johnson & Johnson is one a one-shot vaccine. And so that's one of the benefits that we're seeing with this uh, newly approved Johnson & Johnson vaccine is that it is a one-dose vaccine, right? With this 70% efficacy. And as we said, the initial target was about 50% efficacy, right? So we already know it's better. Another thing that's a little bit different is that when these trials were run with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, versus the Pfizer and Moderna, the the trials for Pfizer and Moderna started a little bit earlier in the summer last year. Um, that was at a time where the rates for COVID, although in certain parts of the country, we did see increases, especially in the Southeast United States, we saw a good amount of cases. However, the burden of disease, right, the amount of COVID in the country at that time was not as high um, as when the trials for Johnson & Johnson started. And so with that said, the results of these trials, um, especially when we look at Johnson & Johnson, being that it, it, the trial started later and at a time when the, the disease burden of COVID-19 was a little bit higher in the, the continental United States and even in other parts of the world, that could have impacted the results of those trials. Meaning the Johnson & Johnson vaccine could be theoretically as effective as the Moderna and Pfizer it's just that because those trials were run at a time where the disease burden was greater, they had more of a challenge, right? It's like if you were running a race, if you had the three vaccines running a race, the Moderna and uh, Pfizer vaccines, right? Maybe they had like a nice gentle incline that they had to chug up, whereas the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was like the stairs that Rocky ran up, <laughs> you know, in the Rocky movie or something. Maybe they had a steeper incline, they had a higher hill to climb, Right. And therefore, they ran a slower time, but they probably did the same the same amount of work. Um, 
or or were in terms of their um, effort and I guess you could say effectiveness, right? And just getting up that hill, even though it took them a, a longer time, right? They had a, a tougher hill to climb. They had a, a greater challenge to to surpass. And so with that said, this is at this time, from what we understand, looking at the data, it is an effective vaccine. Um, so one, we have that benefit in that it is a one dose vaccine, two, in that it is 70% effective, uh, but three, right, as, as, as far as the handling and storage of this vaccine, the requirements are much less than a Moderna and Pfizer. Those vaccines, because of this sort of delicate mRNA that they're dealing with, right, some of the technology involved, we need uh, more strict storage requirements. So we're talking about sub-zero temperatures, right? Freezers that need to um, uh, sort of house these vaccines, whereas the Johnson & Johnson vaccine can be stored for months at a time in a refrigerator, right? So you can just put this in the refrigerator uh, theoretically at home and it would be perfectly fine and still maintain its effectiveness. And so there are very real advantages with this vaccines when you compare it to the Moderna uh, and Pfizer um, vaccine. So when we talk about more specifics regarding the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, uh, this is AD26.COV2.S. Uh, that's just the candidate name, right, for uh, tested, or at least the one that was in the, the trials for uh, this Johnson & Johnson product. And essentially, it is a recombinant replication incompetent. That's a big deal. I'm going to focus on that term. Replication incompetent adenovirus serotype 26 vector. All that says is that this is a adenovirus that cannot replicate, right? This is not a virus that can um, replicate in your body and cause a new viral infection, similar to the mRNA vaccines, right? This is not going to give you COVID. That's what we're saying with that statement, um, or at least in the name of this um, particle. But it is, again, we're a combinant replication incompetent adenovirus serotype 26 vector. All that means is that if we take a vector or think about a vector, a vector gets you from one place to another. You can think of it that way. Um, in this case, this is uh, allowing our bodies to essentially take up or our cells take up the genetic material needed to make a spike protein. So again, it is a adenovirus vector encoding a full-length stabilized SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, right? Basically, it was derived from the first clinical isolate of the Wuhan strain. This vector, and right, this is not new technology. This was actually used in the Ebola vaccine that was approved by the European Medicines Agency and also in vaccine candidates against uh, RSV or respiratory syncytial virus something that we've been living with and dealing with uh, for many years. And also for vaccine candidates uh, in development for HIV and even the Zika virus, right? So this is not new technology. Um, this is a platform, a vaccine platform that has been in use for a number of years um, up to this point. One thing that has been very well known is that these uh, AD26-based vaccines are generally safe and very immunogenic, meaning not only are they safe, but they can very well stimulate an immune response. Basically, what it is doing is similar to the mRNA vaccines, 
right? Is tell our body how to make a spike protein so that we can make that protein and then our body can develop an immune response to it. And that immune response will ultimately, hopefully lead to antibody production that would then protect us from uh, COVID. And so that's that's a little bit of the details uh, there. Kind of similar, but a somewhat different approach. Uh, when we look at, as we said, some of the storage requirements and even the administration requirements and that this is a one dose vaccine versus two dose, that's some of the reasoning why is that this is a completely different platform that they're using. And so um, there are pros and cons with that approach. Um, and we've talked about a number of the pros. When we look at the trials, as far as the, the we talked about the effectiveness here in the United States, about 72% effective. In some other parts of the world, there's about 60. Um, those eff effectiveness or efficacy rates are in the 60s. One of the, or at least among the main um, adverse effects of the vaccine, right? Obviously, one of the dominant ones, local tissue inflammation. So soreness at the site of injection. Um, there are some individuals that did have headache, fatigue, even fever um, after administration of the vaccine. Uh, but as far as their rates of serious adverse effects, you know, just as with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, those were pretty low. And so that's that's basically it. We'll keep it at that as simple. But moving on, I think Mia, you had a question. I do. So recently I got the Pfizer vaccine about a week ago, exactly to the day. I had minimal side effects. Mm -hmm. Everything is great. And I was wondering, are there any studies out or any official statements from public health officials against getting, let's say, like the Johnson & Johnson vaccine if it's been weeks since you got Moderna or Pfizer? I don't know why someone would do that, but this is what goes on in my head. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Nothing, definitely nothing from the trials. And I don't know if that's really, I haven't seen anything about that personally, at least from, I heard some discussion of that, or at least some questions pertaining to that. I've never read anything um, as far as like peer reviewed literature about it, but the thinking, or at least the expert consensus from what I understand right now is that. If you started with one platform or one particular vaccine, you should stick with that one. There is some, and I think there are some studies ongoing now about, you know, what if you got the Pfizer and then get Moderna the second shot or vice versa? Um, I think there's some, hopefully some data coming out soon about that. But as far as doing a totally different platform or getting both vaccines, I don't think anything is out there. Right now, though, I would say generally for anybody that has not been vaccinated, but that is right, uh, wanting to be vaccinated, the consensus right now is that you get what is available, you should get what is available to you. So, right, as we said, don't, you should not vaccine shop, right, looking like, yo, I want the Pfizer, yo, I want the Pfizer, I want the Moderna, because it sounds nice, sounds nice and modern, I don't know, but, um, or Johnson & Johnson, the company's been around forever, whatever. Um, you should not vaccine shop, it's really, ideally, you should get what's available to you. So, if this is Johnson & Johnson, locally or that you can get an appointment for you should go get that if it is the moderna get the moderna if it's pfizer you get the, the pfizer and then you should the best practice would be to stick with what you got so if you got the pfizer you probably should just get the pfizer three weeks later and from what i understand like places are facilitating that so once you got one they will make an appointment with you or very shortly after so that you can be guaranteed to get the second one in a timely manner um, so that you can get the best results as far as generating that immune response. Yeah, and, and adding on to that, just 
as as you brought up, there isn't like a lot of studies out there right now um, about instances like that. And there's always like a possibility of like a cross reaction if you try two different platforms or like two different types mm. of vaccines. So that's always something to be cautious of. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point in that it could affect the effectiveness of the vaccine for you. It could decrease the effectiveness. Um, so you, you got to be careful with that and really just stick with what you got. I think that's the safest thing at this point. Moving on, uh, Reed, I think you had some things you wanted to add as well. Yeah, just from what I've been seeing with uh, vaccine access in the city, it seems like it's finally there's regular deliveries of vaccines to a lot of the sites and they're almost having a surplus at some places. Uh, I know the first shipments of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine have arrived. Um, I know the armory a little bit up from where we are in Harlem had a surplus just the other day. Um, and my roommate was actually able to sign up for an appointment, which was the next day. So he got it. Yeah. Very quickly. So there's tons and tons of appointments that are popping mm. up. And not just that, but there's also uh, a lot of services that are popping up to help you get appointments or get vaccine access. Um, so some, so one I want to wrap is Dr. B, uh, which is a service that you can sign up for. And whenever there's a surplus of vaccines, so say a vaccine site tapped a bottle, uh, which means that they opened a bottle and they started giving vaccines from that, but they don't have enough appointments to finish that bottle. Once a bottle is open and tapped, it is it needs to be thrown out by the end of the day. Uh, so people are now going to Dr. B uh, to promote that they have extra bottles um, and extra vaccine doses. So I signed up for it just the other day. I went to hidrb.com, H-I-D-R-B.com. Uh, you just sign up with your phone number, and when they have a surplus, they shoot you a text. If you answer in 15 minutes, they save you a dose, and you go there and you get it. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. That is, and there, you know, this is regionally. Fortunately for you all, you guys in New York, man, um, definitely ahead of the game um, when it comes to, or at least in comparison to other states um, and even cities. You know, every locale has sort of different challenges and different availability. Um, but one thing, you know, just different tips, right? Unfortunately, we can't give you all the tips for any locale. Um, but one thing that Reed Harp like really pointed out was that um, that's something that we've noticed here in Georgia as well. Man, I'm just putting it out there for people. But uh, but that's a tip that I've heard is like calling a local pharmacy or where the vaccine is distributed mm -hmm. and saying, hey, you know, um, do you have extra doses or if there are any left over? Can I stop by and get it? Um, you know, and this is an anecdote, of course, but uh, through my wife, I heard that, uh, you know, a, a person that she knows that actually did that. So this individual hung around for like an hour after, right, and, and was able to get a vaccine. Uh, they were able to get vaccinated. Um, but they just asked, hey, if you have any extra available, you know, I'm more than willing to hang around. It sucks if you got to wait around. But um, I mean, this is what people are doing to to get it done. One more resource. Very quickly, there's a site called TurboVax. Uh, this is an excerpt from Time Out New York, but it's a new site that's the brainchild of Hugh Ma, a software engineer for Airbnb, 
who was motivated to build a better portal for a local NYC vaccination appointments after he found it really difficult to find one for his mother. It's a free website and it's live and compiles the availabilities from 43 disparate city and state vaccine sites and then sends them in a real time update Twitter account. But you can also just go to the site directly for updates. Got it. That is dope. And um, what we will do, ladies and gentlemen, is incorporate these into the show notes so you don't have to remember any of that stuff, but we'll just put it there, put links to them so that you can just go to them directly from Health in Harlem. That is it. So in closing, so me personally, what I think we should take away from this program is that uh, social distancing right now is a must. The vaccines are not the only answer to this. It's going to be us as individuals and as communities and as a country still buckling down for a while longer to really get a, a, a good handle on this this crisis. Um, so we got to continue wearing masks. We got to continue social distancing and just being smart about it. I'm not saying you can't see your relative, right? The CDC even said it. If you're vaccinated, especially um, having gatherings with other individuals in your family that have been vaccinated, it's relatively safe now. You can even do so indoors without masks. But when you're in the public, you should still wear a mask. You should still practice social distancing. Even when I'm around folks, you know, I still wear the mask. I wear it at work. I wear it when I am out and about in the community, when I'm indoors in the store. I mean, it's still, you know, a lot of stores still requiring it. But that's what we have to do to get a handle on this. Um, and if we don't do it, we're just going to keep having these cycles of outbreaks and uh, increased rates of this illness. And hence the shutting down and all that stuff is going to continue to happen. We'll never be back to never be back to or anything near normal. So we got to buckle down and, and just do the right thing until we have better strategies to really control this at a larger level. We're almost there, but we can't just open up right now. We just can't do it. Anything that you guys want to share as far as take home points? Yeah, these variants out there are no joke. So again, we just got to keep doing what we've been doing, social distancing, mask wearing, etc. And obviously, trying to get vaccinated because hopefully that'll stall the progression and spread of these variants. Uh, and we won't end up having to lock down again. Yeah. I mean, just to echo what everyone else is saying, you know, uh, these, these measures that are put in place initially, they still persist to this day. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's mostly about, you know, taking care of your, your fellow neighbor because those, because you know it's it's exponential the the spread rate with this thing is especially with the new strains coming out so yeah just just take care of yourself take care of other people and uh, just keep persisting. Ladies and gentlemen, we appreciate you listening to Health in Harlem, and we just only ask that you share, right? Uh, especially if you feel like you've learned something new, share with anyone that will listen. Uh, wear a mask. Continue to socially distance and also strongly consider uh, vaccination. Ladies and gentlemen, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself.